God speaks his word to us this morning from Psalm chapter 16, verses 5 through 11. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's kind of quiet in here. Must be really ready to pay attention. Have you ever been around a masterpiece? Um, You know, maybe it was like a famous painting. Some of you maybe have been to like a museum and saw something incredible that we all have, you know, seen, only seen pictures of. Have you ever seen a masterpiece, anybody? couple of you. Okay, cool. Anybody ever seen like something amazing like a Stradivarius violin or one of these priceless, oh nice, uh, you know, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, if you think about masterpiece, maybe like, uh, you know, some amazing fragile antique that was part of your, your family or, you know, a grandmother's vase that had give, been given to her from, by somebody, you know, really important or something. Um, something that was, that was priceless, it's a pretty nerve-wracking experience. I don't know that I would want to hold a Stradivarius violin. I would be really afraid that I, I'm kind of clumsy. I'd be really afraid I would drop it or something like that. Uh, I, I remember one time I was doing a fundraiser for a group uh, in college, and, and I don't know whose brilliant idea this was, but uh, they said, hey, why don't y'all come for this fundraiser? Why don't you, your you know, guys group come be valets for this really fancy event? Okay, sure. We're, so, we, so we're there. You know, not the best idea of all time. But I just, I remember, you know, we're, people would pull up and they're in tuxedos and stuff. And they'd hand us the keys to their cars and we'd go park them at this parking lot. And I remember, never will forget the look on this guy's face. He hands me a set of keys and I hadn't really paid attention. And, and I, I just grabbed his keys kind of, you know, aimlessly and, and started walking to his car. And he said, hey... That's a $300,000 Rolls Royce. Would you be really careful? <laughs> and I'm like 19 or 20, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> sure, right? And I was so nervous after that point, right? And you're like, okay, brake, park, turn. I mean, it was, it was the most nerve-wracking experience that I can, I can remember. Um, you know, and there I am trying to park it into a parking lot with, like, other normal cars. And I'm like... Now, where's the Rolls-Royce parking lot that, you know, gives it extra space away from everybody else? But um, I want to show you a couple of uh, pictures of, of, um, of people who were not careful with, with masterpieces. Um, the first that I want to show you is a painting by a Spanish artist named uh, Martinez. And, and the painting was called, or it is called, Behold the Man. And obviously it didn't look like that when it was originally painted, and over time it had started to deteriorate. 
And so um, uh, there was a woman who was hired to restore the painting. Let me show you the result of her restoration. Some, pe- some people jokingly call that monkey Jesus. Now, this was like a priceless work of art. And the woman was an amateur but claimed to be an expert. I, I could have done that. I mean, our kids in kids' worship could have done that. Um, a masterpiece was ruined. Let me show you another one. Uh, this is a, a more famous painting um, called The Immaculate Conception by uh, an, an artist named Murillo. And so Mary's face uh, was, it's, it's a huge, huge painting. There's a lot more to it. We're just kind of looking at, at that. So uh, next picture, you can kind of see her face was starting to, to fade a little bit. And, and so, again, they, this museum said, well, we need, to, we need to restore this. And so they hired a person. Let me show you their first attempt. This is the first attempt. Apparently, they still had the guts to keep going. And they thought, I can do better than that. Let's try some more. That's the second attempt. This is in a museum, a priceless masterpiece. That's the face of Mary now uh, as a result. Turns out the guy was a furniture restorer, not a painting restorer. Why he was hired, nobody knows. But he, was, he conned the people, right? He, he, he appeared to be an expert, and that was the result. Uh, beautiful work of art uh, of, of the Virgin Mary. You have to be careful with masterpieces. And so it is with the series that I'm about to begin. And I have to tell you, um, I, I, I've, I've been nervous. Because uh, we talked about this, start of this series last week. But God, how the resurrection impacts our everyday lives. You see, this, this series... Uh, is a closer look at Ephesians chapter 2. Um, in, in my opinion, and in many other scholars as well, uh, their, their opinions, Ephesians 2 is a masterpiece. Now, I know what you're already thinking, right? Isn't all the Bible a masterpiece? Yes, it is. It's all amazing. But we would say this, this passage, this chapter, is for many the cornerstone of, of the gospel. This is as clear as it gets for, for a lot of scholars when they, you look at Ephesians 2 uh, of what God has done and, and through Jesus. And so, um, you know, I, I would say w- I have tons of favorites. You probably have heard me say favorite movies and favorite songs. You're like, you've mentioned multiple things that are, th- that are your favorite song. But, so I do. I have lots of favorite bands. I have lots of favorite. But this is probably my favorite chapter along with several others. This is my favorite chapter. Um, and, and it's had as much of an impact on my life as any other chapter I can think of. The, the way that my faith has been um, formulated by this chapter, it, it's had as much of an impact as anything else that I can think of. And so, so I'm excited, but at the same time I'm super nervous because I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to ruin a masterpiece. But I, I'm convinced that this chapter can change lives. It can change my life. It can change your life if we'll look at it and see what what all God has to say. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapter where we get to see the amazing work of the gospel. Amazing truth of what, what God has done through Christ. 
But what I love as I thought about it this week is, is um, while Ephesians 2 is an absolute masterpiece, it's, it's not like something that, that should be hidden away in a vault. In, in fact, God wants the opposite. He, he's given us a masterpiece that we would see it and know it and use it. He wants our hands all over it because he wants us to live out this passage. We are in a, an interesting season uh, of, the, of the Christian calendar, what they call Eastertide. Um, and so if you think about like Yuletide, the word tide is kind of this festival, kind of this season of. We are in the season of Easter, meaning Easter has come, but it's such a profound thing that, that Christians over time, over the last couple thousand years, have, have spent time We've just got to digest and celebrate what this is. And, and they remember the time that Jesus was on earth uh, after the resurrection. So those, those days that he's on earth before he ascends into heaven is the season that we call Eastertide. And so this is the first Sunday of that. And so I, I want to spend a little bit of time just looking more at what the resurrection is and wh- what it means for us. And so, so that's what we're doing this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for what it has meant to so many over the centuries. How it has formulated and, and, and founded the faith of, of Christians through history. So as we look at this uh, a beautiful, amazing passage... Let, it, let us not only appreciate its beauty, but let us get our hands on it. It would make a difference that we would figure out how to live it out every day. It would be a part of, part of us, of who we are and what we do. I use this time now as we study your perfect word. In Christ's name, amen. So we are in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Verses 1 through 5 of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So many of you are familiar with Ephesians. Uh, so let me just kind of give you a, a quick reminder of it as we jump into the second chapter. So Because we're, we're, we're not hitting the beginning, we're just jumping into the second chapter. Ephesians was, was written by Paul uh, to one of his favorite churches. Um, he, he, he loved he loved the city of Ephesus. He loved the, the church there, and he had spent a lot of time there. Ephesus was both a place of, of Greek and Asian influence. It's in Turkey today, so you kind of can think about it as kind of the, the joining there of, of Greek world, you know, Greek Roman world and, and Asian world. It, it, it kind of was, was a blended place of, of both of those things. 
Um, During the time when Paul was there, it was mainly of Greek influence. Uh, It was was the home, uh, their proudest uh, thing. It was the home of the goddess Artemis. And, and her temple, if you, if you remember history, was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the big white one with all the columns. It kind of looks like the Parthenon, but it was way bigger than the Parthenon. This giant white building on the top of a hill with uh, 127 massive columns. Ephesus also had a, a stadium where chariots raced and, and, and they could close part of it off and, and they'd have gladiator fights uh, there. Uh, they also had a, a massive theater where over 20,000 people could sit uh, and, and, and hear all kinds of, uh, of performances. It was a major city in the Roman world. Some say it was the third most influential city of the Roman world. Uh, its port connected, uh, the, again, the east to the west. And so a lot of trade took place there. Uh, it was a major port uh, as, as far as imports go. And Paul spends a couple of years there, and, and, and we know that his influence was, was incredible. In fact, it was, it was so profound um, that the people who made their fortunes off of the goddess worship of, of Artemis, they were starting to lose business. They were losing their fortunes because so many people were converting from paganism to Christianity that there was a, a riot, there was a revolt, uh, and they all went to the... Um, to the theater there, and they tried to kill him. There was a mob, and, and um, he, he was just barely saved out of that. But he had such a massive impact in Ephesus that people were, were turning from the— there were, I'm not going to get into all the details, but the, the goddess worship in that place was made Vegas look tame. Okay, we'll just say that. It was a crazy place, and people are coming out of that into Christianity with no knowledge— with no knowledge. And, and so, so Paul's going to teach him a whole lot about who Jesus is and what does it, does it look like to follow Jesus. Um, but so he leaves, he leaves Ephesus in 57 AD. And, and most scholars think he wrote the, the book of the Ephesians in 62. So about five years later while he is in prison. Most scholars believe that the, uh, the book that we call Ephesians was actually... Um, a, 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 a letter that he wrote that was meant to be circulated. So it doesn't have all the details of like, hey, tell my friend so-and-so hi, and, you know, help with this. He doesn't give a whole lot of specific details of the, of the city of Ephesus. Most think he's, he's meaning it for it to be circulated among that whole, uh, that whole area. He's going to give a real big view. Uh, you know, th- when you think of the book of Ephesians, it's a big view of Jesus um, to people who are coming from a pagan world who don't have a clue, who don't understand, their understanding of religion is very, very different. And, and so as, as what he has already written in chapter 1 is, is Paul is trying to explain the beauty of Christ as well as his sovereignty, um, this idea that God, uh, through Jesus, has put Jesus in charge of everything and, and, and uh, that, that Jesus chose us before the world to be predestined. Um, and then that Jesus now holds everything under his control. It says he has sealed this work, all the work of Jesus. He has sealed it in us through the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and it's just an, an incredible thing. Chapter 1 is just incredible. Um, and then there's this prayer at the end of, of chapter 1 where, where basically Paul says, look, I'm, I'm praying that you're going to grasp how big a deal 
all of this is. I just told you the best news, and I really am praying that you will understand it. Uh, he says, that I hope that you're, you'll have your eyes of your hearts enlightened and that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance and the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And then he, he's going to go even further in this prayer and he's going he's to say that the same power that resurrected Jesus uh, is in us. That's, that's the same power. The, the power that brought Jesus from the dead, that's the power that's in us today. And so that's, that's exactly where, where things leave off of chapter 1 and where, where chapter 2 picks up. And so Paul is going to remind us where we are and, and also contrast that with where, with where we were. So let's look at, at verse 1 again there. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we're just going to stop and note a, a couple of things here real quick. So first, our status is dead. Status is dead, right? And if you think back to our our movie quote, if you were here last week, right, we weren't mostly dead. We weren't partly dead. We were dead dead, right? We were totally dead. Spiritually, you were as dead as dead can be. And because you were absolutely dead spiritually, you were doing nothing of any spiritual good. Okay, so to be able to do anything of spiritual good, you have to be alive spiritually at all. And we were not. We were dead spiritually. And so that means our nature was fallen, and we practiced evil. We did evil all the time. So you would just say, we were doing what spiritually dead people do. If you're dead, you do what dead people do. Spiritually, that means we're doing evil stuff. And so then we would say, therefore, that makes our nature fallen. What is our human nature? What is our tendency? It's fallen. We, we fall under the category he called us the sons of disobedience, which is just a broad blanket statement of saying bad people. We did what bad people do. And everyone was bad. Everyone did what was evil. Everyone was dead. So you could say spiritually we were the bad guys. Um, we, we've talked before, but there's this kind of threefold enemy that we had, that was in us, and that's the world, the flesh, and the devil. <clears throat> and those things all have dominion or power over us, as, as Paul says, in, 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 in this old way. We were slaves, right? Um, we, we were slaves to all of that. So I have to tell you, I don't really like zombie movies. That's not really my thing. Um, but you, you probably have noticed there's been a ton of movies about it in the last decade or so, a ton of, you know, TV shows, like one of the most famous shows of all time, apparently, uh, was about, like, walking dead people. Um, uh, so, so while I don't really love those shows, I do think zo- zombies kind of give us a good imagery for, for these three verses, okay? We were, we were the walking dead, if you will, the walking dead, 
um, physically alive, but, but no ability to do anything, uh, anything good, only evil. That's all we could do, right? Physically alive, spiritually dead. Zombies doing what zombies do, which is like eat people and chase them around in slow motion, right? That's, that's what zombies do. We shouldn't expect them to be able to do anything moral. They don't show kindness. They don't show love or patience or all the things that we think of. They do what zombies do. And so the question that I think is relevant is, in this moment is, is this, right? And what role do dead people play in coming back to life? What role do zombies play in zombies coming back to life? None. Because dead people do what dead people do. They can't do anything of the living. So, for instance, right, should Mary or Martha have gone to the tomb of Lazarus and said, Hey, brother, Jesus is on his way. He's coming down the road. You need to get ready. Get ready, Lazarus. Here it comes. You know, you just take that first step, buddy, and Jesus is going to do the rest for you. No, the people around them would be like, hey, that's crazy talk. He's dead. He can't take any first steps. He can't do anything. He can't approach Jesus. Only the giver of life can do anything about the situation of Lazarus or any other zombie-like people that was us. So, dead. All dead. And then we get to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so I love this moment because the first three verses were a real downer. But God, despite being dead, Despite being doers of evil, God is a God of mercy, and He's full of love. And He so loved us. And so I have to, I have to say this out loud for myself. Uh, I don't know if, if this is helpful for anybody else, but I have to say this, right? Because it's right here in verse 4. Because of the great love with which He has loved us, I have to say this to myself. Because of the great love with which he has loved Nick. That doesn't come out of my mouth very easily, I, I have to say. It's something I would just encourage you to practice too. Because of the great love with which he has loved me. And he's saying us, and there's a lot to that. But you're included in that us, and so you can say it. Because of the great love with which he loved Nick. Here we go. God made us alive together with Christ. So I, I just have to tell you, this, this word here, and I'm going to explain a little bit, is, is the thing that has kind of sent me spinning the last few weeks as I've tried to think through what to do with the resurrection. He made us alive together with Christ. So I'll just say from the beginning, this whole masterpiece thing, right? Pastors and theologians cannot do this word, this masterpiece, any justice. It's, it's such an amazing concept that God made us alive together with Christ. 
that, that Paul in this verse right here has to make up a word. He has to make up a verb. Made us alive together with God. We'll just say made us alive together with is really one long verb in the Greek language. Made us alive together with. And it's only used in two places in all of Greek. Again, it's kind of a made-up word. And guess who uses it? It's Paul. He uses it once right here, and then he uses it in Colossians chapter 2, which, which is really just the sister verse of this verse. It's the exact same, same concept. He's, he's speaking to the Colossians about this very same idea. When God resurrected Jesus, the work of being spiritually resurrected was done. For everybody who was going to be resurrected, it's done. And, and so this is why I mentioned some of this last week. The, the work of Jesus and, and the salvation that he gives, it's not like some ticket that we, we get, right, when we pray a prayer, we, do, we get a ticket and then we're just going to wait to use someday. That's, that's not the idea that we get here. That's not the idea of the resurrection. That's not the idea of, of salvation as we understand it in the Bible. It has already happened. Paul makes that very clear. It has already happened. The work of resurrection for you and me has already happened. And so that means something very significant for us. And, and Paul has a few different choices. If he was going to write this in a different way to mean something else, he easily could have done it. He was very specific on, on, on the language that he used. Um, and, and so to, without trying to get too deep into all of that, let me just um, say that Paul uses language of completion intentionally for, for salvation. He uses this completed uh, v- verbiage, and, and then he uses this present, resur- uh, uh, present language with resurrection. So completed salvation, but present tense resurrection. Uh, commentator Clinton Arnold says this, by using the perfect tense, but perfect tense is a, a type of uh, verb tense, by the way. It's perfect in the way Paul describes it, but it's a, spe- a tense, okay? Um, By using the perfect tense, Paul stresses his reader's present experience of salvation. Present experience of salvation. And then later he says, Believers here are assured that they already possess this deliverance from God's wrath, not only in the future, but also in the present, in the light of the fact that God is currently pouring out his wrath on the ungodly. So we are already experiencing resurrection, already experiencing salvation because God is not pouring out his wrath on us in this moment. And, 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 and we've talked about this several times. Mike preached on it. It was such a, a great message that we all need to hear. God is not angry with you. He is not pouring out his wrath on you anymore and never will again. The salvation has already occurred. The resurrection theologically has already happened. We are already experiencing eternal life today. And so I hope you're tracking with this because it's just amazing. It is so amazing that Paul's going to stop 
you, that's kind of what everybody's opinion of, of what he's saying here. He's, he's in the middle of this really amazing moment, and he's writing, and then he just has to stop and say, whew, because it's by grace that you have been saved. Like, he's just kind of putting that in parentheses uh, as an aside comment. You just, if you haven't figured it out already, just you need to know, it's by grace that you have been saved. That's how amazing this moment is, that he just has to stop himself and say, oh my goodness, by grace you have been saved. God's kindness, his love, his grace, it gets all the credit right here. So I kind of want to bring this home a little bit, because I always find myself asking the so what when I read a passage like this. This is incredible, it's beautiful, so what? What does it, what does it mean for me? What does this mean for me? Well, the answer is a lot, and, and that's why we're doing a five-week series on this, because there's a lot here. And, and hopefully you were expecting this, because this series is about how the resurrection changes everything, how the resurrection impacts every day. So first, I I want you to imagine and and picture in your head an evil action. Something that you just, it's the worst in your mind. It's just the most evil thing you can think of. Or maybe it's a group of people who do that evil. Okay? Something that really gets your blood boiling. I want you to picture them. I want want that in your mind. Mine was human trafficking. Just as despicable and evil a thing as I can think of. Stealing a person to sell them. Absolute evil. Okay, so hopefully you have that in your mind. You and I were worse in God's eyes than what it was that you just pictured. The people that you hate, the people that you can't stand, you and I were worse in God's eyes than that. But God. But God. God loved us. So picture in those mind in your mind, those people that you can't stand. God, we were greater in God's eyes of evil than them. And God loved us. And he gave Jesus for that group of people. Those people that you hate. God gave Jesus for that. And you were a part of it. He punished Jesus for all of it and for our evil. And and then he applied the work of Jesus and and all the good that he did. He said, it now goes for you. You will be declared righteous because of what Jesus did. I'm applying his goodness to your evil. (laughs) We, We are these walking around dead, these walking zombies of evil, and we were made alive by the work of Christ. And so because we're made alive, we're not under the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil anymore. We used to be under the control of sin, but we aren't slaves to it anymore. So that means we have been freed from the power of sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are still realities. They're still around us. They're still trying to get us. But they don't have authority over us anymore. This is incredible stuff. And this points to the second thing that practically I think you can take home for what it means. Salvation is more than just the forgiveness of sins. It 
It entails a participation in Christ's power and authority over the forces of evil. That, that verb that, that, that Paul created, we were made alive together with Christ, means we're participants in Christ's power over the forces of evil. And, and I kind of had this, this picture in my head a, a week, and, and it, again, it's, it's an imperfect example, but it's just what I kind of kept imagining of myself. Uh, I have this, this picture of, of kind of being in the wilderness, and, and God is says, inviting us in. He says, hey, come on in and live in my house. And it's really cold outside. And, and I'm staying outside, and I've got rocks, and I'm banging them together to try to get some sparks going, right? I got some, like, dried-up leaves and stuff, and I'm just banging these rocks together, hoping some kind of spark takes place. And right next to me is Jesus. And he's in this warm place, and he says, hey, why don't you come and sit by my fire? I've got this warm place that I've prepared for you, and you're welcome to come on in. I'm like, wow, thanks, Jesus. What a great idea. Whack, whack, whack. There's no hope of fire from that. It's not going to happen. But it's already been provided for me. And I think you and I too often live this way. Right? If we have been raised with Christ, together with Christ, if we've been raised with Him, that means we've been changed. The junk you and I deal with every day has no power or authority over us anymore. And Paul is begging and praying for his, his, his readers to understand in this letter how incredible life in Christ is. How incredible this resurrection and salvation that has already taken place is. We're not dead anymore. We're not zombies anymore. We're not slaves anymore. And we are alive in power. And all we've got to do is stop banging these rocks together and come into what he's already done for us. And just embrace the power that's already there. Remember this prayer from chapter 1 where he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the power in us because we've been raised with Christ. Do you think there's anything going on in your life that Jesus hasn't already declared victory over? Do, do you think there's any sin or problem or struggle so big that you have that it can't be dealt with by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead? You and I have no power or ability to change. But God. But God. Because He's great in, in love and mercy, He can make us alive in Christ. And remember I said in, in verse 14 of chapter 1 that, that God, when He made us alive with Christ, then He sent the Holy Spirit to seal it, to keep it, so that it can never be taken away from you and I. How can you be assured of your salvation? It has nothing to do with you, but, but the, the Holy Spirit is guarding it. He's guarding that salvation. He has sealed it. It will never go away. 
And then, then that Holy Spirit enables us to live a life of this power. So, so my very practical encouragement to you is that you start to pray with a different kind of boldness about the things that are in your life. God, I don't have any power to deal with this blank, right? Whatever it is for you. I don't have any power or ability to resist this thing. I can't do anything about blank, God. But because you brought me to life with Jesus, I've already been resurrected. Then this thing has no authority or power over me. Lord, enable me through your Holy Spirit to live in the power of the resurrection. If I am eternally alive with Jesus already, then you can bring change in me. That's a prayer of power. That's a prayer of a resurrected life. You and I will feel powerless at times in our battles against the world and the flesh and the devil. But the resurrection life is lived in the power of God with with the life of Jesus through the help of the Holy Spirit. That's a resurrected life. Let's pray. Father, we can't. We have no power. But you can. Because of your great love and mercy, you can bring us to life. You can make us alive with Christ. You can change us through the work of your Holy Spirit. We don't have to fear anything. Nothing has authority or power over us. We've been freed because of the gospel. We've been freed because of the resurrection. Help us to live like it. Help us to rely on this power in everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that tries to come against us. Remind us that it is powerless because of a resurrected Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen.